listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Amen. Just as Pastor Michael was just praying a moment ago, um, thankful for the opportunity that the Lord has given us to freely preach his gospel. Pray that the Lord would continue to do that in and among us and in this area. I'm, I'm thankful as of recent days, we've had several of us have had the opportunity to walk around the neighborhoods in the nearby communities and uh, knock on people's doors and talk to them about the gospel of Jesus Christ and I, I don't know what you would expect in doing that. I don't know exactly what I expected in doing that. But what we haven't found are a ton of people who would just reject any God at all. We, we haven't found a lot of people who would say, I do not believe that there is a God. What we found is that a lot of people are religious and that a lot of people know about a Jesus that they've conceived in their minds. And a lot of people know about a Jesus that does good things for them and does good things on their behalf, a Jesus who performs miracles at their will, not his. When I was a kid, my grandmother, who was a godly woman who genuinely loved the Lord, she had been steeped in Pentecostalism, and she was convinced that we could do the exact same miracles that Jesus did. And so one rainy afternoon, she told me, just like Jesus, that I could tell the storm to stop, and it would. Well, in the name of Jesus, I declared that the storm stop, and would you know it, it did. I remember being in disbelief in that moment. Like, what did I just do? You say, do you think that you did that? Then I did. But no, I don't. Do I believe that God is absolutely sovereign and nothing is coincidental in this life? I absolutely do. I tell you that story because as I declared that the storm stop, I was so excited about this seeming miracle that happened right in front of my eyes, and I couldn't believe what I had done. But it wasn't for another decade that I would understand that the greatest miracle, I don't want you to miss this, that the greatest miracle is when Jesus calls sinful men and women to himself and gives them new hearts and then I am one of those people. And when you realize that, you move from thinking, what an awesome thing I have done, to what an incredible thing God has done in my life and on my behalf. We can't take the signs and wonders, Jesus, and forget the reason that Jesus, the Son of God, performed them. It was to showcase himself, to show us his glory, to usher in the kingdom of God. 
So we want to avoid focusing on the parts of Jesus that we like only to the detriment of others, thereby gaining a warped view of who he is and what he came to do and what he's calling us to do. So where does that leave us as hearers today in the 21st century in October of 2021, this morning, as we look at Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 32, I want us to see that Jesus is the miracle worker who calls men and women into service in his kingdom. And as we do, there are four particular truths in this passage that highlight who Jesus is and our role in his kingdom. The first is this, Jesus considers sinful men for his mission. Now, Michael read the passage just a bit ago, and so we're not going to go every line by line now, but after a long night of fishing, after catching nothing, you have to love this, a carpenter, Jesus, tells the master fisherman what to do and how to catch some fish. He says to the veteran fisherman, I want you to let out a bit. Go into the deep of the water and let down your nets. Now, here's what you need to know. In the Sea of Galilee, it was known that you catch fish close to the shore. And not only that, you do it before the sun comes up. Because if the sun comes up and you let the nets down, the fish can see the nets. They're not going to get into the net. So it makes logical sense that Simon Peter would first say, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Now, we don't have any tone indicators in here other than the one that Master, uh, that, Master that, Michael, <laughs> that, that Michael read for us just a bit ago. We don't have any tone indicators other than that, right? There's nothing that would tell us what has just been said. Nevertheless... Simon Peter submits to his rabbi and says, but at your word, I will let down the nets. Now, he may think, Simon Peter may think that this is not going to work, that nothing that Jesus is prescribing him to do is going to work at all, but he does it anyways. Brothers and sisters, isn't that often our Christian life? Like, whether we say it or not, we're often thinking to ourselves, Lord, I know the resources that you've given me. I, I do the budget every single month. I know what comes in. I know what comes out. And if you don't, you should, right? I, I know the resources that the Lord has given us. And here's what I know. I know that if I don't put this amount of money into a retirement account every month, I'm not going to have the necessary resources to take care of me when I reach a certain age. Lord, here are the resources that you've given me. This doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that you would have me to give a portion of my income to, to the resources to, to steward here in my church com community. That, that doesn't make sense. But at your word... I'm going to do it. Or as I'm sitting at the new neighborhood lot off the McDonough Square, I see, I see my children running around trying to jump into the road. I'm nervous as I'll get out. And this other dad is sitting next to me. His kids are running with my kids, and we're both trying to make sure that no one gets hit. And I think to myself, Lord, he doesn't want to hear about Jesus right now. He came here to eat dinner. He, he doesn't want to know anything about the living Christ, but at your word. 
I'll do it. You told me to go out into the world and, and preach the good news that men would be reconciled unto God. At your word, I will do it. So, so Simon Peter says, and we have to think, maybe this isn't the best idea. It doesn't make logical sense. I've been doing this for many, many years. I know how to catch fish. But at your word, Jesus, I will let down the nets. And would you have it that they start to catch fish? So many fish that two boats begin to fill up and they begin to sink. And verse 9 says that they were astonished. Peter, James, and John, veteran fishermen, had never, ever seen such a thing. Now, I love what R.C. Sproul says here, that we must understand how this happened that Jesus is the maker. He's the Lord of those fish. He made the lake, and when Jesus told his men to put the net in the water, the fish came to do the bidding of the master. There was hesitancy on the part of Peter, but no hesitancy on the part of the fish. The amazement goes even deeper than this great catch, though. For Peter, you see, when he sees this, verse 8 says what? that he falls down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Here's what we know in that moment, that Simon Peter has had a change of heart. Sure, he may have respected and followed Jesus, the man standing before him, before this encounter, because in verse 5, he calls him what? Master. But now, what does Simon Peter call him? He calls him Lord. You see, this miracle for Peter gives him a peek into the glory of the Lord standing in front of him. And not only that, in seeing a glimpse of God's glory, he also sees into his own heart. John Calvin said that no one ever attains a clear knowledge of self until he has first gazed upon the face of the Lord. Perhaps this scenario takes you back like it does me, to Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah gets a vision from the Lord seated high in his throne room with the hem of his robe filling that temple, seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings there at the beginning of chapter 6. With two, they covered their faces, and with two, they covered their feet, and with two, they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. As Isaiah takes this in, the glory of the Lord on display before him, he is immediately confronted by his own sin and, and says, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In the same way, in this moment, as Peter sees all of these fish Peter's beholding the glory of the Lord before him. He is confronted with his own sin and thinks, a holy God cannot bear to be near such a sinner as I. Depart from me. Get away from me. But instead of leaving Jesus, who is obviously the holy one in this scenario, instead of saying, you're right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave, I'm going to be out of your presence, Peter, Instead of saying, you're right, and I'm going to condemn you in this moment, what does Jesus do? He invites him in. 
Now, this is a holiness that they have not seen before. This isn't anything like what they were expecting. As Peter confesses his sin, in light of who God is, Jesus says, join me. I have a mission for you. And it's not going to be a mission that you're extremely good at, like fishing. It's not going to be a mission that you can say, hey, I know how this works. Some of you would say, man, I, I have IT all figured out. I, I know how a computer works. I know how printers work. And if you do, you are a genius. Some of you would say, man, I, I know how the food industry works. I know how this industry works. And I would say, man, I, I love reading books and meeting with people. You're like, yes. But Jesus says, this isn't going to be an industry that I'm sending you in that you feel very prepared and well-equipped, that you would say, man, I know how to catch men. No, you're not going to have you're not going to know how to do this. This isn't going to be something that you would think, I, I can do this. I have a ton of skill. I have a ton of ability. No, he takes them out of their comfort zone. and He says, follow me. I'm inviting you in on this journey. I will be with you. I'm going to disciple you. Just follow me. Do you want to be used in the kingdom of God family? You must first recognize your own sinfulness. That's what we see here in the text. And so verse 11, as soon as they get their boats to land, what do the disciples do? What do these men in front of him do? They leave everything and they follow him. Not to something that's comfortable, not to something that they say, hey, we have this under control, not with something that they would say, I have every skill and ability to do this, but they realize that they have come face to face with the glory of God. They realize their own sinfulness and the holy one standing in front of them says, follow me. I'm inviting you in to a new mission. I'm inviting you in to it. Our students in Collide this semester are working through Jesus' parables. And one such parable that they've recently covered is the parable of the pearl of great price. Well, the disciples here in this passage have certainly discovered it, right? Like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. The disciples knew when this man called them that they wanted nothing more, nothing more than to follow Jesus. Now, I can't tell you how many times as a child that I heard this story. Anybody? Like, man, I have heard this story one bazillion times about how Jesus tells these men to let their nets down and they catch a great multitude of fish. I heard that story a bazillion times about the miracle of the great catch. You know what I never much considered? I never much considered the miracle that Jesus considers sinful men for his mission. Now, if you are in here today and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that the miracle is that he has invited you, a sinful man or woman, into his mission. And he is empowering you to go into this lost world to proclaim the good news of the gospel and to catch men. Second, Jesus causes sinful men to be clean. You see, here's a man that has leprosy all over him, 
Now, here's a skin disease that often means that there are open sores all over one's skin and is extremely contagious. And the text saying full of it means that this is an especially bad case. Now, listen, I want to paint the scene for you, okay? And I'm not meddling when I say this. Perhaps you'll think I am. I think it's contextually relevant to help you get the picture because we talk a lot about quarantining these days, don't we? A year and a half ago, my wife Dory and I contracted COVID-19. Thankfully, by God's grace, we improved, and I realize that not everyone can say that. I'm pretty sure, though, that we were one of the first, if not the first, in our whole church to get it. And so as we were improving over those 10 days, we passed that time, and I think the next Sunday that we could return was on day 11 or day 12, and I remember Jeff calling me and saying, hey, Chris, you know, maybe for perception's sake, you just stay out one more Sunday. And I completely understood that. I wanted to get back, but nobody else had had it, and we didn't know what was going on. And uh, we had just recently returned to public gatherings, and I was heeding my brother's words, I will stay home. The next Sunday that I was able to return to the church gathering, I truly thought to myself, this is what a leper feels like. Not that anybody said anything to me. I mean, everybody did stand a little further than normal away from me. But I had my mask on, and I was trying to take necessary precautions. We had done everything that we were supposed to do, but I just felt like we were an outcast at that moment. But here's what I know. As I was reading this passage and thinking back to a year and a half ago when I thought, man, this is what a leper feels like, I realized this is nothing like what a leper in this time and place felt like. In fact, it was, it was nothing like what a leper went through. So whatever we know or whatever you've experienced in, quarantine, in quarantining, this was much worse. Because this man, on his knees before Jesus, he shouldn't have even been there. He's supposed to not only be in his home, but he, in fact, is supposed to move outside of his home and live in a colony with other leprous individuals. He can't be inside the community. He's not only sick and contagious, but a priest, according to Leviticus chapter 13, has already had to declare that he is unclean. He's sick, he's contagious, and most importantly, he is unclean. And I don't want you to miss that because when a priest declares that an individual is unclean, with leprosy, mind you, that meant that temple worship was over. You do not get the right to come into contact with the rest of the people of God and worship the Lord. You don't get that. And if someone were to come near you as a leprous individual, you were to cover your upper lip and you were to scream out, unclean, unclean. On the chance that your condition improved, you would have once again needed to be re-examined by the priest the, lep the, the priest would have needed to give you some kind of doctor's note, just a, a bill of clean health, if you will. But neither the law or the priest could fully give that to an individual. Hear that. Neither the law nor the priest could declare definitively that an individual had been made clean. A leper would not only need to see a priest 
to be considered clean, but he would also have to offer a sacrifice as atonement for sin. And through the atonement is when an individual could be declared clean. So with that context, everyone knows that this man on his knees before Jesus shouldn't have even been there. And they were shocked just to see him. But even more than that, they couldn't believe what would happen next in verse 13, that Jesus would touch him. Because here's what they knew to be true. That if the clean touched the unclean, that meant that the clean would now become unclean. But Jesus, with his words, is now declaring that this man who is on his knees before him is declared clean. That would mean a reversal in the order that they knew to be true because here the clean is speaking and touching the unclean and is now making the unclean clean. Do you hear me? Wait, no sacrifice? No atonement? You see, as one author put it, Jesus possesses a holiness that produces what the law requires but cannot produce. But let us not miss verse 16 because here's what happens next in the story. We know what Jesus has just experienced. We will find out in just a moment about where Jesus is heading. But whatever it is, it has caused him in that moment to withdraw to a desolate place and do what? Pray. Verse 15 tells us that great crowds would now gather to hear him and to be healed. This is Jesus' moment to capitalize on all that kingdom expansion that they've been talking about for some time now. I mean, isn't that why Jesus had come? To see that his kingdom would be made known on earth and that it would grow? We concluded last week in chapter 4, and in verse 43, Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus' PR team is standing by, waiting to take this brand nationally. And this is the moment. Do you see what has just happened? Do you see who had just been healed and made clean? This is our time, Jesus. But no, Jesus doesn't capitalize on that moment in the way that you and I would think that he should. What does he do? He withdraws to a desolate place and he prays. He knew the way that it would go. He knew what he had just done among the people. He knew where he was going with the people in a moment. And in praying, he clues us into our needed response as kingdom disciples. May we not gain fame and miss the Father. The leper has not only been healed of his leprosy, as we have heard many times, but the miracle was that Jesus had just made this man clean. Jesus causes sinful men to be clean. Third, Jesus cancels sinful men's doubts. Now, here's another scene sometime after Jesus has cleansed the leper. And here Jesus is teaching the Pharisees, this text says, and the teachers of the law. And then Luke gives us just a little bit of extra information at the end of verse 17. And he says, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. 
Now, one has to wonder what the connection between this in verse 17 is with the, the, the previous verse, 16. The power of God is always there. He is God himself, but it's with him in a way that causes Luke to record it this way. And in verse 18, we see some men bringing on a bed a man who has been paralyzed, hoping to see Jesus. But verse 19 tells us that they are finding no way to bring this man in. I mean, this house is packed. Outside the house is packed. We can't get our friend to see Jesus. So what are we going to do? There's some wise guy in this group of friends, and he says, I have an idea. We're not going to barge our way through. We are going to go through the roof because that makes the most sense. And so when Jesus sees their faith, he says to the paralytic, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, I can only imagine what the man who is paralyzed thought about what Jesus had just said. We don't have any more insight into this moment, but can't you feel the tension? I had a, I had a friend who was life flighted once with heart issues. And he said as, as he laid there on the gurney in the helicopter, and helicopters kind of are tilted like this, he said he's having heart issues, and his body is feeling like it is falling forward, and he just knew that he was going to have another heart attack because of the way that he felt, and he just knew that this helicopter was going to go down. And as I was reading this, you have to imagine that this wasn't the, the easiest Drop down, you know? They're opening this roof in a way that it shouldn't have been done, and they're like, here's this man. We have him on a gurney. Take him. This man can't move, and he's thinking, Jesus is about to heal me, and what does Jesus say? Man, your sins have been forgiven. That guy's got to be like, what in the world has just happened? I read that it's better to limp into heaven than run into hell. And sure, but walking is even better, right? And Jesus, though, sees his physical body, but what does he do first? He addresses his soul. Why? Because what we can't miss here is that the thing that we need most, our greatest need, is not for a perfect physical body, but the forgiveness of sins. The religious folk don't really mind that Jesus hasn't healed the guy in the way that everyone thought, though. They've been triggered by these apparent blasphemous words. The only one that can forgive sins is God alone, they cry. And of course, they're correct, aren't they? Yeah, this is the one time that the religious folk get something right. That is, in fact, absolutely true. God is the only one who can forgive sins. Their theology is spot on. They've missed, however, that God in flesh is standing before them. Jesus perceives their thoughts, though. According to verse 22, he knows what's really bothering them. And so he begins a dialogue, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise and walk. Anyone can say your sins are forgiven because that's an inward transformation. Nothing happens immediately. You don't just grow a beard and get thick, luscious hair. Though in the Reformed community, which we find ourselves in, you would think that at least one of those things happen, right? But that's not the case. 
You don't, you don't just grow a beard or anything like that when Jesus comes in and changes your heart. So it's really easy for us to say, hey, your sins have been forgiven. He says what's more difficult is to say, hey, take the mat, get up, and walk. So here's what I'm going to do, Jesus says. I'm going to tell this man right now before your eyes to rise up and walk so that you know what I initially said, man, your sins are forgiven you, is true. Jesus wants the man in front of him to know that he has the authority on earth, verse 24, to forgive sins. And so he says, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And in that moment, when Jesus says that, the entire room, the entire house, those who have gathered outside the house are supposed to look around and think, Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the one who has the authority from God to forgive sins. I've heard this story too many times. I've heard it preached about the friends who would do anything to get their friend to Jesus. I've heard it preached that way. I've heard about the miracle of Jesus healing the paralytic man. You've heard that story many times, haven't you? Jesus wants the story told that he has the power on the, this earth to forgive you of your sins. And it's the story that you must know and receive for eternal life, that Jesus came to this earth in humble means, as a baby. And he lived a perfect life in perfect obedience to the law, in perfect obedience to his heavenly father. And he died on the cross, a death that you and I, every single one of us, because we were born into sin from our mother's womb, every one of us deserved to die that death. And Jesus on the cross absorbed the wrath of God that was storing up for sinners like you and I, and he took it upon himself. He drank deeply of that cup of wrath, and he said, it is finished, and he died, and he was buried, and on the third day, he was resurrected, proving that he was able to conquer our greatest enemy, sin and death. That is the news that you and I, if we are in Christ, are here today to say, Amen. Praise the Lord. He has done a good work, and he, Jesus, has the ability to forgive us of our sins. Jesus cancels sinful men's debts. The next time you hear the story of the paralytic man, don't forget that. Fourth, Jesus calls sinful men to himself. After Jesus heals the paralytic and forgives his sins, he runs into a good old tax collector. Now, tax collectors were not known for their overt kindness. They aren't known for that today either. In fact, uh, this past week, I had a Facebook reminder pop up that six or seven years ago, uh, I owed the, the IRS a little bit of money. And so I was paying a payment plan, and I called this particular day to pay my payment. And at that time, would you have it? The federal government was shut down because of a budget issue. And the recording that I received that day said something like, at this time, all offices of the federal government are closed, but if you owe us money, please continue to pay. Like there was people somewhere to receive the money, I'm sure, right? 
Tax collectors aren't thought well of today. They certainly weren't thought well of in Jesus' day because they were collecting for a really oppressive regime called Rome. And these tax collectors were thought of as they were as crooked, wealthy, and oppressive. Jews were literally, day after day, praying that the fall of Rome would come or that the Lord would somehow remove them from her tyranny. So when they see a tax collector, they see the embodiment of all of that rage and anger. And here Jesus sees Levi, the tax collector, the epitome of wealth, tyranny, and oppression. And Jesus invites him to follow him, to be his disciple. A man who steals from God and his people is now being asked by Jesus to come and follow him. And Levi gets up, and the text really quickly says this. He leaves everything, and he follows Jesus. It wasn't like, hey, I have more money to collect. Hey, I need to just get a couple of months secure in my bank account. No, he, he picks up. He leaves all of his wealth behind. And what does he do when the Savior, Jesus Christ, asks him to follow him? He does it. This is conversion. That's what conversion is supposed to look like, family. We're called by God, and we're immediately given new hearts, new affections, new desires to follow Christ with everything that we have in our lives. And in finding this new family, what does Levi do? He thinks to himself, man, i got to celebrate. And the only friends that I have are more tax collectors. So I'm going to invite a whole bunch of sinful tax collectors to a party, and we're just going to tell them what Jesus has done for me and my life. Again, this is conversion. This is how we, those who have been redeemed, are to respond to the faithfulness of God, having saved us, having redeemed us, having drawn us into his family. We are to go out and say, hey, man, I don't know what has just happened, but would you come and hear about the good news of the gospel in my life? And the Pharisees and the scribes, they don't like this party one bit. Jesus is eating with a whole bunch of tax collectors. That means sinners. Jesus is with sinners. And in saying this, they must be presuming that they themselves are not sinners, right? They should be reclining at table with these tax collectors because they are sinners themselves. But instead, what do the, what do the Pharisees think? They think, man, we got to live separate lives. We got to pull away from these people. They're dirty. They're unclean. They're disgusting. We can't have anything to do with these individuals. And after all, aren't we as Christians today supposed to live holy and separate lives unto the Lord? Yes. Yes. But the Apostle Paul, thankfully, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 13, give us instructions on what this separation is to look like. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there quickly or you can listen as I read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 13. Verse 9, the Apostle Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Well, I guess that kind of says it, right? Were the Pharisees justified in their thinking? Were they supposed to refrain from going to this party with the tax collectors and Jesus? The Apostle Paul continues, though. Verse 10. Not at all meaning 
the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So Paul says, you would have to leave this world to get away from sinners. That's not happening. But you are supposed to remove yourself from those who say that they are Christians, from those who wear the badge of brother and sister and yet still live in blatant sin. You're supposed to go. We're supposed to go to those who are sinful and don't, know, don't yet know Christ. We're to go to where they are. We're to be with those people. We are to implore them to understand and to know and to hear the glories of Christ in his gospel. How else would, be, how else would we be able to call sinful men and women to repentance if we never go to them? We must go to where sinners are. Recently, a church partner was telling me about a conversation that he was having with a coworker. The coworker was asking him if we were a church with signs and wonders. And my brother graciously and kindness responded, yes, certainly we are. It may not be the kind of church or the signs and wonders that you're thinking, but I assure you that God in our midst is continually taking dead, sinful men and women and giving them new hearts, and he is calling them to himself. And that is certainly the most beautiful miracle of all, is it not? Perhaps you've heard the miracles of Jesus ad nauseum. That Jesus performed the miracle of the great catch of fish that he healed the man with leprosy, and he caused the paralytic to walk. Dr. Luke certainly wants us to see every one of those things as he has recorded for us an accurate telling of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. But there's something else. Luke doesn't want us to miss our unique challenge to respond to Jesus. You see, when we come in face-to-face -face, or when we come to face-to-face -to -face with who Jesus is, that he hasn't just collected a great catch of fish, but that he considers men sinful men for his kingdom. When we come face-to-face -face with who Jesus is, it is then that we realize that he doesn't just heal people of their diseases, which he does, and we prayed even this morning that he would continue to do, but that he also cleanses sinful men and women. When we come face to face with the living Christ, it is then that we realize that he hasn't just made a paralytic walk, but that he is God himself who forgives sinful men and women of their sin, and that he doesn't just make men likable, as though he could do for a tax collector, but that he calls sinful men and women to himself. When we come face to face with this Jesus, we will be willing and empowered today by his spirit to leave everything behind and follow him.